Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, Episode 356. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm also thrilled to introduce our guest, James Kelly. James is, James is, I don't know why I'm having trouble with that. James is, <laughs> yeah, right. It's Monday. We'll, do you want me we'll to take do, over? Do you want me to take over? Just <laughs> Yeah. James, you're a podcaster. I'm just going to throw your introduction over to you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for welcoming. <laughs> thank you for having me on your show. I am Dr. James Kelly, or just James Kelly, if you will. And uh, I am the author of The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity, as well as a professor, a dad of four, and I live in the Middle East just outside Dubai currently. Yeah. I. Well, that was really eloquent. Listeners, I have to tell you. This is the second attempt at this recording. It's going to be amazing, even with bloopers, but talk about a transparent, authentic view of the podcasting or the podcaster and guest side of things without any editing. This has been a blast already. I'm sure some of the listeners are appreciating it (laughs) because really some of them have no idea how much editing really does go on behind the scenes, especially on my podcast, just because there are those days when my mouth just doesn't connect to my brain. It's like a I could blame it on shortage of coffee, but even on coffee days, it's there in your bio that only I can see listeners can't see it right now said your adult life has been one consistent failure after another, which I'm sort of laughing about right now, considering my bloopers, your bloopers, my tech failures last time. But I would love if you would jump into that and explain more to the listeners so they know just where you came from. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. And and thanks for the opportunity for me to be on the show, uh, Kim, as well. Well, thank you for coming back. I have to put that out there. As a podcaster, I've had those days. It's not a big deal. Um, (laughs) So no worries. (laughs) So I think the failure comment for me is one of those things that it happens often to everybody. And to those people who are a perfectionist, you know, they might think, well, it doesn't happen to me. But the fact you are a perfectionist is a failure process because you know, the anxiety that you give yourself in failure to me is a failure. And so, you know, my life has been riddled with shortcomings, wrong directions, bad choices, you name it. It has been there for me. But the consistent thing that I had when it came to failure and that I have is that I embrace it. And more importantly, I own it. I own it all the way to the bank. And if it was a treasury bill, it might be worth some money someday. But I own it. Oh, I like that. Yeah. How much are those bills worth when they become <laughs> valuable? Just please let me know. I mean, they already yeah. are, but I'm just going to – I'll be quiet now. No, no, no. It's your show. Do what you want. Well, I'm just uh, thinking about how much money we make off of failures because we just keep on pushing forward. And it's those yeah. mistakes. How do you mean that? How do you mean like all the money? Like, Are you, are you trying to take my T-bill metaphor and run with it? I am sort of, yeah. But I'm thinking about, you know, look at post-it notes, right? Yeah. Post-it notes weren't actually supposed to be post-it notes. They were trying to design an adhesive for who knows what function. 
And what they wound up with was the adhesive that is now used on post-it notes or, or sticky notes, as some people might know them. But, you know, the only reason that happened is because the people at 3M allowed there to be space one day a week for failure. I love that. Right? They were one of the first companies in the history. And this was, I think this was back in like the 50s, 60s. I can't remember exactly the time frame, but it, was, it wasn't like the 80s. It was 50, 60, 70, somewhere in there. But, but that organization said that, you know, if we're going to keep pushing forward, we need to have space to let our, to let our people innovate. And, and then that's what happened. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no. Look at it. It's going both ways here. No, but that is so true. I mean, leaving the space for innovation is so important. And I never thought about the fact that being a perfectionist is actually a failure in its own right. I was. I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I used to get so stressed when everything wasn't going my way. Even when I launched the podcast a year and a half ago, I would get so stressed if, if I had a blooper. And now they're just going to be left into this one. And So what happened? What was the transformation? I got tired of seeing perfect pictures on social media. I didn't realize I was tired of it until after I launched the podcast. But there were some people who I noticed only ever showed the beautiful side of life. And I'm going to put quotes around beautiful because personally, I think that the days that my kids Sharpie marker their face are just as beautiful as the rest. And I think that, you know, those failed Pinterest cakes are just as beautiful as the real Pinterest cakes, <laughs> right? So yeah. if I'm going to do my job on this show and if I'm really going to represent my life and how I've gotten through it all and how I've gotten to where I am today, which is not where I want to be tomorrow or in a year or five years, because I don't even know what that looks like yet, then how is it fair to hide what we do experience on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. Because I thought I was really screwing up, James. I thought I was like, I always thought I was doing something wrong because my life didn't look like that. But in fact, I'm doing everything just how I should. It might just look like it's been colored with green Sharpie marker. <laughs> I think the big thing there is that you're choosing to embrace versus put up the facade, if you will, of the whole process, right? I mean, life is a series of subtle and sometimes not subtle mistakes and errors as you go along. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of the biggest gains happen is in those failures. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, here's another podcasting fail. I have a cat hanging from blinds right now in my office. I thought I had gotten all the cats <laughs> out of my office. They creep out of the closet when I'm not looking. He's literally hanging there. He's okay, guys. He's not choking or anything. He just wants out. And yeah. So take us deeper into your journey. Okay. Well, what, what, I guess let me ask what that means. What does that mean? So like, you know, and I say, I say that coming back to you because I feel like, you know, as a podcasting host and a guest, people often, I ask that question, people ask that question, ask me that question. I find myself thinking, well, what part of my journey? Like, you know, do you want me to, to describe a particular failure? Do you want me to, so I'm not trying to be sassy by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, it's okay um, if you are. Get, I like it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just want to get more direction. Yeah. What are some of your best failures? I need to say best. And then how did you wind up in the Middle East? Okay. So, geez, best failure. That's like asking which kid do I like the best, which all parents have I one. Know. Let's just be honest. Just kidding. Yeah, just kidding. We, we, we do, though. <laughs> Don't lie about it. We really do. I know I have two uh, out of the five. Yeah. 
Um, they don't listen. Don't tell anybody. Right. So I think, you know, one of my biggest, gosh, you know, I, I filed bankruptcy uh, in my late 20s. That was a big failure for sure. Uh, I made a lot of poor choices, uh, thought that I could manage certain aspects of my life that I couldn't manage. Like I thought that I could go back to grad school and own a Land Rover. Well, I can't do that because I'm not making any money. And I, I didn't have too much pride to sell the car before I, before I moved. Or another massive failure was getting fired from a job, you know, for reasons that were kind of out of my control. And at the same time, I'm sure I set up the circumstances to be less than desirable at the organization. You know, I was working at a company in San Jose and, and I was, uh, I moved there from Portland, Oregon to take over an office that was already dysfunctional. And when I was hired, I was told that I didn't have to do any more sales calls. I was going to manage the office. And so <laughs> what I found out when I got there is that the sales rep actually hadn't worked in about six or seven months. And for various reasons, this individual could not be fired. And so I ended up getting into several fights with my boss and saying, fine, I'll do sales calls. So my attitude was already kind of poor at that point. And so one day I got an email from some place this time. And this is 19, this is 2000, 2001. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, Kim, but it's interesting email with a link. And you know you shouldn't click on the link, but there's something about it that drove your curiosity. So you clicked on the link anyways. <laughs> so Just a few times. I, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what I did. And within an hour, I had knocked out the complete network of the company and shut down like something like 20 offices with a virus. <laughs> so fast forward about a week, I came to my office and the door was locked and my keys didn't work. And I was laid off slash fired. <laughs> so, but in that, you know, it was kind of a blessing. You know, I ended up moving to New York, getting my MBA coaching water polo for a few years. And so, you know, for me, it was a complete, it was fine. Your egos hit a little bit and your pride, but at the end of the day, you find that there's always sunshine on the other side. So, so that was, those are just a couple of my failures and I could go on for probably a little bit longer. Oh my gosh. I just got to share. I have done all of that. Yeah. Yes. Although I didn't file bankruptcy and I don't know at this point if that was a good idea or a bad idea because yeah, go ahead. I should have filed. If I had listened to all the people who told me I should have, I would have filed bankruptcy eight years ago. Mm-hmm. But I decided to just do my best to take care of all the debt. And I had to admit that's probably the better choice and let the rest roll off. Yeah, I reckon that's probably the better choice because you have probably more pride and more appreciation where I felt trapped and just kind of thought, well, this is the easiest path forward. Had I had, quite honestly, the 2500 to file bankruptcy, which I think is sort of funny, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm going bankrupt because I don't have any money, but yeah, I can go bankrupt if you pay, you know, I can help you with your bankruptcy if you pay me 2500 Yeah. <laughs> The credit cards have already shut me off because I haven't paid. Yeah. <laughs> and then I started my first company in 2005 while I was already working a full-time job. And I was sleep deprived. I was designing schools. I was an interior architect. 
And in my sleep deprivation and trying to do too much, I had accidentally on the finished schedule, listeners, if you're not familiar, for every single room in the school, there was a basically an Excel chart that would say what was going on the floor, what was going on the wall, like the paint color, what was going on the ceiling. In my sleep deprivation, I put the wall colors on the ceiling and the ceiling color white on the walls. So there were red ceilings, blue ceilings, yellow ceilings. And that's how the contractors painted because they didn't want to question. Ah. Yeah. At least it made for a colorful school. Oh, it did. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) It was an elementary school. Yeah. I think that's perfect for elementary school. Oh, yeah. So how I ended up in the Middle East is that I was a professor in Philadelphia, and there was just an opportunity to take me and my four kids to live in the United Arab Emirates. And I thought, it's not permanent. It's a temporary thing. And for my kids, there's probably no better experience in their life than to go live someplace completely different. And so that was kind of one of the biggest, I think, drivers is that I wanted an opportunity for my my family to experience different things. You know, last summer, we went to Portugal for the summer and lived on a beach for six weeks. I am pretty sure that if we lived in the U.S., we would never do that. It's not something that you would think of. But when you live overseas, the world's your oyster. And so you're more willing to explore the unknown when you're out of your comfort zone than when you're in your comfort zone. And so that's kind of one of these philosophies that we've kind of come up with in our family is, you know, uh, don't let fear conquer you, conquer your fear. So lean into it when you're a little bit scared, not the physical fear, but the emotional fear. Be a little bit vulnerable. Don't be afraid to try something that's new or different. And, you know, my kids don't totally adhere to it. Don't get me wrong. But over time, you hope that they embrace that philosophy when they have difficult choices to make in life and they keep hearing the same thing again and again. That is so interesting. I don't remember... It could have been in our first attempt at this chat, for all I remember. But I remember somebody saying or reading it somewhere, if something scares you, that's what you've got to do. Maybe I even saw it on a movie. Mm. I believe it. I mean. Yeah. But it's a lot easier said than done. Well, totally. I mean, but I think, Kim, think of all the choices. And you can't ever regret the choice you make. But think about all the choices that you've made, emotional choices, that you made because you were scared of the alternative. Uh-huh. But if you if you take yourself out of that moment of choice and reflect on it now, you may have made the other choice because you can see two steps down the road how that choice may have bettered you as a person, gave you a different opportunity or whatever. But often we sit there and think to ourselves, okay, we're in the moment of choice and that's really scary and what if it doesn't work or what if I'm judged or what if, what if, what if? And you what if the crap out of yourself Besides saying the positive what if, what if it does work? What if I do get a better opportunity? What if I learn from this? Often we, we like to be stones or boulders in our own place and not trying to shake ourselves up to do something different. Right. My husband and I almost sabotaged ourselves because we were both scared. Actually, mm-hmm. I don't think I've showed this or shared this on the podcast before. We actually broke up for three months shortly after we started dating. He was scared of mm. something good. <laughs> of something normal, probably, right? Yeah. Or at least whatever normal is. I mean, that's totally a definitional thing. Yeah. And we had met each other on Craigslist. I was looking to see what jerks were out there, but he was actually yeah. looking for somebody. And then I found him and, you know, realized, oh my gosh. So 
he had had previous wives who had cheated on him and he was convinced that the only way I could actually be real was if I was cheating on him too. So he broke a mm. date and put an ad up thinking that he would catch me looking for somebody else. But when he broke the date, I was like, what the heck? Because it was something that we had really been <laughs> looking forward to. So I looked back on Craigslist just to see if he was cheating on me. And I saw the ad and of course I didn't want to hear anything about, you know, I'm just doing it to see if you were actually looking for somebody else. So yeah, so he was scared of something good, and but I realized, no, we were supposed to be together, and it scared me out of my mind to be pursuing mm. somebody. But now look at us, eight years later, yeah. three more kids. Yeah. That's awesome. Out of every mistake <laughs> comes something interesting. Can't always say yes. something better, but something interesting. Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. So... In our last chat, you were talking about how a lot of your community or the people around you are expats like yourself and about maybe this was not on what was supposed to be our recorded portion. So I apologize if it was off the record and we can delete it. But I didn't realize how economically beneficial it could be for some people to live abroad. Oh, well, and it's not like that for every country. I think that, you know, I've lived in Australia and I've lived in Japan uh, and now the Middle East. And, you know, Australia doesn't have the same type of agreements, if you will, or, or packages for work as they do here. So here they realize that there's a perception issue. And so most expats, this is kind of like the last place they want to go. But, you know, in this particular country, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, the norm is to pay for your housing, pay for at least one or two of your kids' education at a private school, pay for your trips home every year, pay for end-of-service leave. They all have their own packages. But So the idea is that when you come here, families that typically have two parents working full-time and one or two kids in school full-time absolutely make a killing in this environment. I mean, they just crush it, full stop. And that is the benefit of being here. You kind of get trapped a little bit because as you start making a lot of money and saving a lot of money, it is tough to leave because you know when you go back to your home country, your income and savings gets cut in half straight away. So for most people, if they start making a lot of money and they can deal with kind of the nuances of this country, they end up kind of staying 10 years or so. But when they're done, if they've saved enough, they've saved maybe a half million dollars in 10 years to a million. I mean, it just depends on the family. I have friends that have been here five years, no kids, both work, and have saved roughly 700,000 US dollars, you know. Which so, blows my mind. And yeah. it's not like they're making millions of dollars every year. No, they're making exactly what they probably would make in their home country, but there's no tax, there's no income tax. So that, you know, whatever you make, you keep. So that's a huge savings. But there's other expenses here. They tax you other ways here. But overall, if the circumstance is correct and good for you and your family, it is a beneficial place to work. There are a lot of Ameri Americans that work here who both parents work. Uh, all the kids are in school. And they're saving money to buy a vacation home in the States or to pay off their house or buy a house, whatever it is. But they all have some sort of agenda. They're all working towards it you know, quite handsomely. Wow. So how long do you see yourself staying there for? And, or do you have any idea right now? And if you see yourself leaving anytime soon, 
where would you like to go next? So two very good questions. One, there's a couple of factors for how long we stay here. Factor one is how well my book sells. That's a big factor. And factor two is I just recently am working on getting certified in this concept called appreciative inquiry. And it opens up a lot of doors to do different types of consulting or facilitation and things like that. And so if those two things take off sooner than later, we'll move back probably next year. If not, then the year after. So two years max. For us, four years is enough. And we like to kind of get back. You know, living here is not beneficial for me from a speaking standpoint. It's not beneficial for me from a consulting standpoint. So that is one of the driving forces is that I'd like to do more speaking. I think that I'm a fairly good orator. So I'd like to do more speaking and I'd like to have the opportunity to help more people. And where we currently live is a little bit outside Dubai. So those same opportunities don't really exist for me here. So yeah. So I mean, that's kind of the big, I mean, yeah, those are the It's either next year or the year after is kind of the two things. Yeah, I can imagine it would be harder to get a paid speaking gig when they have to fly you from Dubai to the States or. Yeah, I passed up two. So I just, in fact, recently got emailed to be a keynote and I had to pass it up because of the timing. So I'm in the States at one point next October for an event, but the keynote was two weeks later. Well, I can't stay in the U.S. for three straight weeks without my family and I have a real job. So I wasn't really willing to fly here or fly to the U.S. and then fly back twice in two weeks because that's just a suicide run to do that. So Yeah, it is. How long <laughs> is that flight? I'm curious. And I know it depends on where in the States you go. But what does a flight like that normally look like? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go direct from Abu Dhabi or Dubai and you fly into New York or Chicago, and it's really not that much different, by the way, if you go either New York, Chicago or Seattle – And the reason is is that you just fly up over the Arctic. And so it cuts the distance down. And so the average flight is about 14 hours if you go direct, maybe 15, depending. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So it's a long flight. It's not particularly pleasurable about halfway through. So, yeah, um, that's why I've actually recently decided that I will always break up my flight. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, with kids, it's a great way to get them out of the airplane so they don't go nuts. Yeah. And I thought a five-hour flight to San Diego from Ohio was difficult. <laughs> it's funny. I used to think the same thing totally. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to be on this flight for five hours. And then when I moved to Australia, every flight was 12 to 14 hours. And one flight was like 15, 16 hours in the airplane at one time. So, you know, it totally changes your perspective when you start having to do these long-haul flights. And you're like, five hours? That's one and a half movies. Easy peasy. <laughs> so... <laughs> Right. Yeah. That gives a whole new perspective because, oh, wow. Okay. Someday I hope to experience that, but I'm okay if it's not today or tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I would love to hear more about your podcasting journey and how you got into that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So when I first started my podcast, which was three years ago, It was called Brave Endurance Wellness Podcast. And the goal of that was to interview all the executives, CEOs, and consultants that were in corporate health and wellness. And so for the first 70 episodes, that's what it was called. And I interviewed the CEOs of pretty much all the major uh, wellness providers. 
and all the top consultants. But what I found is that it became limiting, right? So I was hearing the same thing again and again, and I wasn't that particularly interested in learning more about the space. So in episode number 70, I pivoted and I changed the name of the podcast to Executives After Hours. And the reason was, is that my podcast is really predicated on people's journey. And so, you know, the slogan that I have for my podcast is that I care about who you are, not what you do, because who you are defines what you do. And so I take my audience on a journey with executives from where they're born, what their family dynamics were like, challenges they had, and then we end up where they're at currently at the end of the podcast. But the aim is not to ask about tactics or strategies or whatever. It's to have a genuine conversation with leaders around the world about their personal journey. And so on April 5th this year, I joke and I say I concluded my season one. My season one was three straight years of podcasting. And so I'm taking a break until September. And in September, I'm going to take a little bit of a different pivot on the podcast. So instead of interviewing just any CEO or any executive or leader, I'm going to be a bit more targeted. What I found that happened is that, you know, when you have a podcast called Executives After Hours, you probably should speak to solely executives. But I found myself kind of, as you know, Kim, there's probably, there's a lot of companies out there that send you guests now. And so I started just kind of accepting whatever guest I had without being selective to what the aim of the show was. Yep. I hear that. Yeah, I found my listenership started to go down, and I was taking the easy route. And so what I decided to do starting in September, which if your audience is listening, I think is a pretty cool thing. Uh, we'll see how it goes, though. <laughs> what I think is cool in reality doesn't always match, is I'm going to start doing executive after hours by city. So for example, and I'm going to do it by seasons. So season one, or season two, I guess, would be executive after hours Dubai where I'd go up to Dubai and I would interview between seven and 10 CEOs. And then I would get at least half of them to sit down in a round table to have a conversation. And I'm going to video these interviews so I can put it on my YouTube channel. And I'm also going to distribute it all at one time, like a Netflix series. So I'm going to drop it at one time and then I'm done for you know six to 10 weeks. And then I'll fly to another city and I'll do another set of interviews in that city over a three to four day period. And then I'll come back and edit and put them back up and drop another series. So season three, so forth and so on. So right now, tentatively speaking, my first season will drop probably mid-September and it will be Copenhagen, which I know is a bit random, but it'll be executive after hours Copenhagen to start. And if that goes well, then I'll probably do London and then I'll do New York or Philadelphia, and I'll kind of work my way around. And I'll just pick a city and curate the CEOs that want to talk to me and try to get as high as I can or as large an organization as I can. And, and then, yeah, and then just basically do it by seasons by city. And I think that's a kind of a unique way to do what I was doing before, but be very targeted to where I'm going. I love it. This is going to date me, but I was a high schooler when – MTV's real world first launched. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. So when you started describing it, I was thinking it's like real world for entrepreneurs and maybe not, you know, the wickedly cool spaces that they live in. But I think it's a fantastic idea. And I love how it's targeted to cities. 
Yeah, it could go well. But, I mean, if you think about the bigger picture of it from a marketing perspective, you know, Kim, the idea is that I grow my global footprint. So as I do this over a year, I'm now meeting CEOs all around the world. And, you know, one of the best benefits of a podcast, if you enjoy it and you have a particular talent for it, is you actually make fairly deep conversations in an hour. And for many people that I've interviewed, they remember those conversations. And so it it holds a fond place in their heart. So for me, as, as I start to kind of develop my speaking and talk about my book, it allows me to open up doors that maybe weren't previously opened, if you will. Oh, absolutely. So how did you choose Copenhagen as your first? Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, there's these guys. Um, I'm part of a strategic team at my university looking at the university for 2030. And they hired this firm called the Copenhagen's Futures Institute. And the guys that come out and run it are from the U.S., even though they live in Copenhagen. So the aim is I'll use him as my leverage point, And he'll introduce me to some CEOs and executives, and I'll ask them. And so that's kind of how I chose it because he, he understands what I'm trying to do. And he listens to a lot of podcasts, to be honest with you. And so it makes it easier to sell him on the idea when he appreciates the process. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I just want to get one season off the ground and see how it goes. I mean, yeah. if it's well-received, then I'll dive into it deeper. If not, I don't know if I'll keep doing po- – I enjoy podcasts. But, you know, it's a very competitive market, as you know now, Kim. And the market gets cut up every single day by 10 or 20 new podcasts. Now, most podcasts don't get past episode 10 or 12. Yep. But what's happening is that more people with more power and influence are starting podcasts as well. Mm-hmm. And every time they do it, it kind of sucks a little bit away from you. Because as human beings, I mean, I only listen to regularly seven podcasts. That's it. I don't have time for anything else. And so – you know, when you don't have time to keep adding great podcasts, it's tough to break into the sphere of people who are listening to podcasts. Now, the great thing in the U.S. is that there's only something like 20 million people listen to podcasts regularly. It's a population of, you know, 300 million. So there's still plenty of growth in the market for it in the U.S. and globally for that matter. I mean, in the Middle East, no one listens to podcasts. No Arabic speaking because it's not popular in Arabic culture yet. So there's so much opportunity in podcasting globally that, you know, over the next 10 years, it's going to grow exponentially. So my aim is, and it's kind of been my personality when you think about everything I've done, is I tend to be more globally focused anyways at the end of the day for no other reason, just having lived around the world. And so the aim is for me is to grow my brand globally and hopefully it sucks a little bit into the U.S. at the same time. Right. Well, it's not the most exciting place in the U.S., but the Dayton-Cincinnati area has some pretty amazing CEOs. Yeah, I've interviewed um, one particularly out of Dayton. So I, I actually got my degree, undergrad degree at University of Dayton. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, so you know where I live. I mean, not the Correct. house location. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 2135 East 7th Street, right? Uh-huh. Yep, <laughs> <Just> that's <kidding. laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. It blew my mom's mind a little bit when I told her that she needed to read a book by Clay Mattel, who was the former CEO or the former owner of IAMS, the pet food company. And he uh-huh. sold to Procter & Gamble almost a decade ago, if not a decade ago, for hundreds of millions, if not more. 
Yeah. And when you look around this area, you don't necessarily see it. Mm. I'd love to know if you agree. I mean, in Dayton especially, you don't necessarily see money. You see a lot of blue collar. A lot of blue collar. But there is money around here. There's a lot of really successful CEOs and entrepreneurs living in the area. It's just with a lot of the manufacturing and blue collar, sometimes it can be harder to see. Yeah, no, Dayton's an interesting city. I mean, and most of the wealth may not live directly in Dayton, right? They most of them probably live in one of the suburbs of Dayton. But yeah, no, there's plenty of money in every city, you know, any major minor city. Just have to know where to look for it at the end of the day. Absolutely. Flying in actually from San Diego a few weeks ago. It's always interesting what you see from the air that you don't see when you're driving down the road. I was like, whoa, I didn't know those houses were there. (laughs) 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 It's not in my backyard, but wow, I'm going to have to figure out the road that goes there just to drive by and like, and look, right? Yeah. So I have to ask, what do your kids love most about living abroad? Oh, good question. I don't know if they know what they love most, if I want to be honest. I don't know if they've had a chance to reflect on it. What I will tell you, I think will happen, and I could be wrong. You know, we were actually talking about tonight at dinner. My son has started to pronounce his T's very British-like. So typically when the British talk, they say Saturday or, you know, don't. But the T is very, very hard. It's a hard T. When we say Saturday, they say Saturday. And so even that subtle difference. And we were talking about how when we come back to the States, people are going to make fun of him because they think he's going to be trying to be different. But what people don't understand is that when you're around a culture, you start to pick up their habits. And so at different times of this conversation, you probably have heard me end my sentences on a high note, like, how are you doing? Where are you going? Today was a great day. You know? That's some of the inflection that you start to pick up with people around you who are from other cultures. And so, you know, one of the things that my children will probably understand, especially the older two, because when we come back, they'll be most likely 11 and 9 or 10 and 12, is the nuances between cultures and the appreciation of the difference, not the magnification of the difference of people. One of the things that I pride myself on is teaching my kid that that there is way more in common amongst people in the world than there is differences. But we tend to focus on what we're scared of, not what we are alike. And so... That's really deep. For them, I'm hoping that as they move into, matriculate into, you know, public schools in the U.S., that they will look out for the kids who are different, that they will stick up for the kids who don't necessarily fit in. Because they know what it's like, they've seen it, they understand it, and they'll have compassion for them to appreciate the differences and look to the similarities. Lately, we've been watching The Greatest Showman in my house. Have you seen that? That's a great movie. I just watched it on the way back uh, the other day from the States. Yeah. What a great surprise. And that's exactly what I thought, by the way, Kim. I know where you're going with this. I know that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, we are watching that movie when we get back. I thought that was amazing. Yep. My four-year-old, we were watching it yesterday. I took control of the TV, which drove my four-year-old and my three-year-old twins crazy because they always like to choose the same Disney movies over and over again. (laughs) Okay, so yesterday morning I was like, 
we're waiting for my husband to wake up. One of us gets to sleep in on each weekend day. I was like, okay, we're going to turn this on. And my four-year-old said to me, she asked, why did the witch give him an apple at the beginning? And I don't want to give away anything, people, but the woman is not a, a witch at all. No part of the movie is mythical. Mystical? Yeah. She just looks different. So I had a really awesome conversation, albeit with a four-year-old, about how people who are different are not bad and they're not evil, but they're just different. And then we went through Mm -hmm. each of the people in my family. One of my twins, sort of gross to be sharing on the podcast, but he, he gets boogers a lot. Okay, let's just put it that way. But he calls them burgies. He puts an R mm. in there, burgies, and that's sort yeah. of, <laughs> which is not how other people say it. So it's sort of like the T or the raising it at the end. So my husband actually calls him, what do you, or he says, hey, burgies, what do you want? Which <laughs> all you psychologists out there, I know that's probably not the healthiest nickname for a child. It's to call him burgies, but it's just what happened. You know, whatever. I think we've lost sight of growing our kids character. Like, that's yeah. fine. Do it. But yeah, so I just had to, it was an awesome conversation. Then there's other characters in the movie that she was really intrigued by. And if you haven't watched it yet, you definitely have to watch it. It's a great movie if you want to teach your kids about tolerance and accepting the difference. It's just phenomenal. I had no idea how amazing it was going to be because one of my coaches had recommended A Million Dreams, like the song Mm -hmm. right at the beginning. And I got hooked on that song. And then I got hooked on the rest of the soundtrack without even seeing the movie. Ah. Yeah, because the songs are really amazing as well. If you need inspiration in your life, just go to YouTube and find any of the Greatest Showman soundtrack. This is not meant to be a whole, like, go buy it, go listen to it. But really, it's just so empowering. Yeah. Yeah. I want to jump back to you, though. What are you most excited about at this very moment? So for me, not to self-promote, but it's my book. So I'm really excited about my book. I'm really excited about the people who read my book. I'm really excited about the people who recommended my book. I'm really excited about the notes that I'm getting about some of the antidotes in the book from people who read it. So right now, my current excitement meter is off the charts for the book. It's like being on a roller coaster. It's about 1,000 miles an hour. So yeah. That's probably what I'm currently excited about. What did the journey of your book look like? How long did that take you? I'm a bit of a sadist, and it took me eight weeks to write the whole book, first draft. So the book is 180 pages, 190 pages. And yeah, I knocked it out in like seven to eight weeks. So I was pretty driven, if you will. And I actually wrote the book in Portugal in a coffee shop over a six-week holiday. And then a little bit before and a little bit after. Oh, my heavens. See, the universe keeps on sending me just nudges, including more than a few people on the podcast that I've chatted with about how they've written their book and how it didn't take a year and a half or 10 years to write it. And I've had my book in my brain for two years now. So thank you for just another nudge. (laughs) I think what it comes down to for anyone who writes a book, is it is about just getting it down. It's about being committed, and it's about not nitpicking at the 
early stages. Because as soon as you get it down, it becomes easy to transform and change and delete and add. And But for me, at least, getting the first sentences down is painful every single time. So, you know, you have to find a method for your madness, whatever that is for you. For me, it was recording every single chapter and then transcribing it. So I would record it and then transcribe it and then wordsmith it. And so that was a very fast process for me, which is how I was able to write the book so quickly. But for other people, that wouldn't work if they don't like to speak into a mic. They like to write. So, you know, for someone who likes to write, it might take them 10 weeks. You know, it just depends on the person. But for me, I was also motivated. I mean, I had a goal. I wrote it out when I was 33. And I said I'd write a book by 43. I'm 43 now. So I did it. I fulfilled it. And yeah, so I encourage you to do it. But manage your expectations on the sales side of it. Because I think that often when you write a book, we all think we write a bestseller. But the problem is, is that not everyone who reads the book thinks it's a bestseller. Or not everyone who, right. not everyone knows about the book. So, you know, there's so many challenges to selling the book. Writing the book is actually not the hard part. It's selling the book that's the hard part. Well, it's the same as a podcaster almost. Uh-huh. A lot of us have those grand dreams when we launch our podcasts of making it to new and noteworthy and then being on the top list. And it's the same as writing a book and having the dreams of being, I'm not going to use Amazon bestseller because there are systems around that, but being on the New York Times bestselling list, you know, or bestseller. Mm. No, I don't really have any expectations for sales. But this is just the idea that's been nagging at my head. And actually, thank you for bringing up transcribing because just yesterday I looked up. I had no idea that I could use my MacBook. Okay, that sounded bad. I know how to use my MacBook every single day. I didn't realize that I could open up pages and actually dictate right into it because my hardest part is just looking at the white for my book. I can look at white for anything else and know exactly where I'm going with it. But looking at the white for my book is like an eraser. It just zaps whatever I was just going to say. Oh, totally. Yeah. So thank you. That was huge. You're welcome. And thank you for coming back again. I want to know where listeners can find you online, where they can buy your book and where they can connect with you. Yes, yeah, sure. Can I say a little bit about the Please. book so they have a better sense of what it is? Sorry. Yeah. So I want to try something out on your audience and see if it works to describe my book. So I was thinking about how I could describe it in a way that would resonate with them. So I'm going to go with this. And if, if it fails horribly, just let me know. So all right. So I would ask anyone who's listening to grab a pencil or pen and find a blank piece of paper. I will wait for a count of four. One, two, three, four. Okay, good. Now, what I want you to do is draw a circle. And inside that circle, I want you to write the word crucible or adversity. And that is the starting point. Now, just to give you a sense of the book, the book was written by me interviewing about 140 leaders across the universe, different industries, different levels, from a Fortune 2 company all the way down to entrepreneurs. And what I found consistently for the leaders who I thought were most authentic were the leaders who embraced their adversity moment or adversity moments. But that wasn't enough. So take that circle and outside that circle, almost like a bullseye, do a second ring around it. So now you've got one inner circle and then an outer circle that's surrounding the inner circle. And divide that in two. 
And in half of the circle, write self-awareness. And in the other half, we're going to leave that blank for a second. Now, leaders that I saw who really embraced their crucible really spent time trying to understand who they were, what that circumstance was, whether it was divorce or a death or job loss or if it was going back to school and getting a degree, whatever it was for them that was one of their adversity moments, they took time to reflect. And out of that reflection, we're going to actually add one more circle around the outside of the ring. So it's going to be a ring and then another ring and then a circle. I hope that makes sense. So like a bullseye, if you will. Yeah, I get it. I'm actually doing it. And in the third ring, you're actually going to divide that into three. So you have three separate parts. And what I found out is those who had self-awareness grew their compassion. That's one of the three. Developed their integrity. That's another one. And really learn to value relationships. And so out of this, you've got, I've got this adversity. What do I do with it? Okay, I got to grow my self-awareness. What does that mean for me? Well, as I grow my self-awareness, I start to realize that living with compassion, not only towards myself, but towards others is really important. Not only psychologically, but just for humanity. And then you learn that, you know what? If I start living with more integrity, being more honest, showing up how, when I'm supposed to show up and how I'm supposed to show up, It has a psychological impact on those I'm doing this with. And then I start to realize that through my adversity, when I grow my self-awareness, is that relationships are really important, what I call relatableness. But if we go back to the circle of self-awareness, the leaders that developed this and grew this concept had what's called a learning mindset or a growth mindset. And that's what goes in the other half on the other side of self-awareness. And what's fascinating is that if you pretend that there are two arrows on that inner circle of self-awareness and growth mindset that go in a circle, chase each other, if you will, like a tail, what you find is that leaders that embrace adversity constantly are evolving through self-awareness and growth to increase their compassion, to increase their integrity, and to increase their desire to have meaningful relationships. And so in the book, I discuss what this looks like with the leaders that I interviewed and through the lens of my world, how I was raised, some, some mistakes that I made, some trials and tribulations. And so that's the book in its sense, The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. Wow. I love all of that. Does that work? Does that description work for you? It's amazing. Can you write the description of my book after I get it done? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've been trying to find a way to describe it. I feel like if I get the audience engaged, it might help. Now, when I was even thinking about my own adversity and how I could see the, the compassion, I could see the integrity. I'm sorry, I forgot number three, but I was just so enthralled. The relationships, the value of relationships. Absolutely. I mean, this podcast wouldn't be here. And just like you were saying earlier in the conversation, the relationship that have been built just off the podcast alone. Huge. Yeah. 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 Wow. So that's the book. And uh, yeah, it's available on Amazon, Kindle version, as well as a paperback book version. You can also go to my website, uh, www.drjameskelly.com. That's D-R-James-K-E-L-L-E-Y.com. Or if you want to just simplify it, just type the Crucible's gift and it should come up there as well. Fabulous. And listeners, the links will be in the show notes in case you can't write them down right now, which you can find at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP356. James, this has been amazing. I'm so 
happy and grateful that you came back for a try to because it was by far <laughs> like oh definitely worth it is what I'm trying to say. My mouth is working better than it was this morning, but it's still yeah. having some issues <laughs> connecting to my brain. <laughs> Well, Kim, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate your time, your energy, and willingness to engage in this conversation. Thank you so much, and you are welcome. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? Wow, great question. So I kind of said it early on in the show. So my passing nugget always with people is don't let fear conquer you, conquer your fear. And for those of you who are have a little bit of apprehension about the book, just go to my website, click on The Crucible's Gift, and you can get the first chapter for free of the book. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level. 